Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace City Online. My name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of our community as we celebrate this Easter Sunday. Today is the day where we celebrate the hope-filled truth that Jesus rose from the dead. It's an event that's had staggering repercussions over the past 2,000 years and will have for all eternity. But let's be honest, that's an event that can be hard to believe that it actually happened. Like, I've been reading about another religion and kind of seeing what they believe and why they believe it. And I I think about, when I look at that, I'm like, how does anyone actually believe in this? But then I turn around, I I kind of turn that lens on myself and I think, well, in my faith, in in our faith, we believe, I I believe that there was a man born of a virgin who wasn't just a man, but was fully God. And for a year, for three to four years, walked the land of Israel preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, that God loves his people and that he's made a way for their redemption. To show the truth of his message, he does the miraculous, right? He feeds the thousands, he cures the sick, he calms the storm, and he raises the dead. And what does he receive for doing this good work? Well, he's murdered. He's murdered by the corrupt religious leadership of the day and an oppressive regime. But it wasn't just them who killed him. No, no, no. It was my sins and my rebellion against God, my rejection of his word that necessitated Jesus going to the cross and laying his life down. And he does this so that my sins could be credited to him, so that our sins could be credited to them, so that our sins could be taken from us so that, and his righteousness granted to us in return, so that we would not face eternal death, but that we would live for him, with him in his kingdom forever. To accomplish that work, right, to fulfill his father's plan and to give proof that he is who he says he was, that he, that he could do what he claimed to do, Jesus walks out of the grave and conquers death. It's a crazy story. It is. It's, I understand the skepticism. I, I, I do because it's, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that it happened. I, I will say this, I, I think if this was a con, right, I think if this was fake, I, I don't think the con would have lasted this long. Like if his, if his remaining disciples had faked, if they had somehow stolen the body and, and, and just made it all up, I think they would have cracked. Like they were uneducated men who really wouldn't have a reason to be bound to one another or to have liked one another before Jesus, right? There were a few sets of brothers that were fishermen that knew each other, but uh, within the, the disciples, there were men from different backgrounds that really kind of would view one another as an enemy. And then Jesus brought them together. And so they, they, they wouldn't have really had reason to stay together after this. And, and it, it's also, you know, they didn't get fame and fortune and a good life because of Jesus and, and his gospel and the resurrection. No, in fact, it was the opposite. All of them, save one, are martyred for their faith. They were willing to pay that price, willing to give their life because they witnessed and experienced the one time in history where someone laid down their life and took it back up again. They saw, they'd seen Jesus do this for other people, but now he had the ability to do this for himself. They were eyewitnesses to the Son of God defeating death and conquering the grave. And as a result, they tell the whole world who he is, what he had done, and the message that he proclaimed. They They were able to be committed to that message, right? Because of the truth of the resurrection that they witnessed. They we're able to touch his scars and, and share a meal with the resurrected Jesus. But even doing that, the miraculous event that happened was still hard for the disciples to believe. And so, again, I get it for us, 2,000 years removed. I understand the skepticism. It's hard to believe. 
But I, I think there's another reason that makes it hard for us to believe just the, the resurrection and all that it entails. I, aside from the miraculous nature of the, resurrection, of the resurrection, I think there's another reason why it's hard for us to, to believe in it and its repercussions for our life. And this reason is not only an obstacle to our faith, but I think it was also an obstacle to the disciples' faith as well. Because we see it spoken to in scripture. And I want us to look at it together. Go to Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 36 through 46, Luke 24, 36 through 46. Just to set up for this, this is um, where this event falls and, and the time frame of things. The, the, this is after the women have gone to the tomb, discovered that it's empty and, and received the message from the angel that he is risen. Uh, this is after even a few of the disciples have had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. In fact, there were two followers of Jesus who had been on a, a, a road to Emmaus and Jesus joined them and they'd had a conversation with him. And then after that encounter, those two have come back to report to the disciples. In fact, they're still in the room giving this report when Jesus uh, comes and appears to the disciples where, he's, uh, where, he's there, where there's a resurrected account with uh, the disciples. All that to say, this is very, very soon after the resurrection. And so that means they're, they're still trying to figure it all out. They've got all the questions like, what's going on? What does this mean? Has this really happened? Are, 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 is this something that's really happened for these people? Or are they just excited? Are they, are, are they kind of misguided, but well-intentioned kind of telling this story? Like, this can't really be happening, right? I mean, it's, it's emotionally charged because remember, just a short while before this, just three days before this, they've watched Jesus' arrest, brutal torture, and horrific crucifixion. And he can't come back from those, right? Like, like no one lives through that. So this, this can't really be happening, can it? It's, it's in that kind of emotionally charged state that this interaction occurs. Let's read it. Luke 24, 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightening and, and frightened, thinking and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So they're talking with one, another, with one another about these different reports that Jesus has conquered the grave when suddenly Jesus shows up and stands among them and says, peace be with you. I mean, this is comical to me because it, it's, it seems to be so understated to me, right? Because you know the disciples and, and the followers that are there in this room, like they're freaking out in this moment because they're either dealing with fake news, hey, this stuff isn't really real, or they've got friends who are having hallucinations, or in their mind, we see that they think they are speaking with a ghost when Jesus shows up, and he says, peace be with you. It's like they have anything but peace in this moment, and yet here Jesus says, no, 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 peace be with you. But then, then he acknowledges their struggle. What does he say? He says, why do doubts rise in your minds? Why do doubts rise in your minds? If, if, I, I can almost just imagine Peter hearing that from Jesus going, well, Jesus, this has never happened before, right? Like, that's why we're struggling a bit, right? What, what do you mean, why do doubts rise? We saw you die, and now you're talking with us. It's a lot to process, right? It's, it's a lot to process. And, and so, but Jesus meets them in their doubts, and he invites them to come close to know that he isn't a ghost, that he actually has a body, that he really has defeated death. 
And so they do, they come close. Verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that he could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus invites them to come and inspect the evidence. You know, he even eats a piece of fish for them to show that he's not a ghost. And then he explains to them that, look, all this was according to plan. This happened to fulfill God's prophetic word. This was God's plan to provide a sacrifice for the sins of those who believe. You know, to make a way for us to be crucified with Christ so that we might live again with him. So he, he starts with scriptures. You know, this is what's written to fulfill the law and the prophets. Then he opens their mind to understand what was in the scripture. So he, he starts there. He starts there. But it's, it's interesting to me that while well, he starts with scripture, he's going to end with how this impacts the disciples. Because he knows they have those questions run in their mind because we all do, right? Like we, we run events through our personal filter of how does this affect us as much as we don't want to admit it, right? When, whenever an event happens around us, it might not even happen to us. If it's happening around us, we run it through this filter, whether it's like a historical event in our society or our nation, or maybe it's someone close to us gets a job or loses a job, or maybe someone close to us, a relationship ends, or, or they get into a program. A question that we quickly ask, like maybe we're happy for them or we're sad for them, but then the question we ask is, how does this impact me? Does this impact me? And, and what's next? Okay, If we do this with, with these types of events, then yes, this would happen for the disciples in and with the resurrection. What does this mean for us going forward? What happens next? What, are, what do we do now? What's next? What's now? And, and so Jesus does. He tells them. He tells them, well, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then what comes next? Preaching. The repentance and forgiveness of sins. You know, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. He tells the disciples, you're going to spread the message you're going to spread the message that there's a way of redemption because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Preach forgiveness of sins and the hope of the gospel. I'm sending you to be the ones to be the witnesses to this. And you won't be alone. He tells them uh, that, they, that the power of the Lord will come upon them. He's reminding them that he's promised them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he's like, look, he's, the Holy Spirit will come and empower your life and your ministry. So he tells them how this is going to impact this life, how this is going to transform their life. And they would know all this is true. They know all this would be true because again, they're talking with the one and only in all of human history who laid his life down and took it back up again. All right, they, they are talking with the resurrected Jesus and hearing not just about what has happened, but what will happen. And it's a lot for them to process. It's a lot for them to process. It'd be hard for them to believe. And if you caught it, Scripture actually tells us what was an obstacle to their faith. And it wasn't just Jesus conquering death. It wasn't just the fact that he stood before them whole and healed after the beatings. Verse 41, it says it point blank. They didn't believe because of their joy and amazement. They didn't believe because of their joy. Right? I mean, 
of all the things to be an obstacle to their faith, there was just too much joy for them to process. Too much wonder and awe at what, that, what had happened. They struggled to believe because of their sheer joy and amazement. I mean, this is the feeling like this is too good to be true. Joy was an obstacle to their faith. And they're, like, we can hear that in some ways almost be dismissive of it. Like, why, why, how on earth could that be an obstacle to faith? I mean, you'd think it would, would be the opposite of that. Like, or, or we might find it humorous or we might be critical of that. But remember everything that's happened to them in, in the days leading up to this. Like they watched their master, their teacher, their best friend be arrested and flogged and, cr- and hung on a cross, right? Like they, they lost a loved one and had the funeral. I mean, they are in an intense period of mourning and anguish and lament. And add to the fact that they abandoned him in his greatest time of need. When they went with Jesus to Jerusalem, it was an act of solidarity. It was an act of, uh, of saying, hey, we're with you. We're going to stay with you. We're going to be with you. It's ride or die all the way. Like they are with Jesus to the end. But the moment the threat presented itself, they run, right? They flee. And it wasn't just Peter, although we have this story of his denials and, and abandoning of Christ. You know, John kind of stays close a little bit, but the scripture does let us know that when this happened, the disciples fled. They scattered. So for the past three days, they've been living with the shame and the guilt that, that they abandoned their friend. That maybe they weren't really the friend they thought they were. They, maybe they're not as loyal as they thought they were. Maybe they're not as faithful and committed and devoted as they thought they were. All that. It's what's weighing on them in that moment. Okay, now, now think of their experience, but then bring that into our world, into your world, right? When you suffer a loss and that grief is intense, or, or maybe when you fail and you make mistakes and make a decision that you know you shouldn't have made, and so now you're carrying that guilt and shame, or you're coming to that realization that maybe I'm not who I thought I was, maybe I'm not what I thought I was. When we're in those moments, it can be twice as hard to let ourselves believe in something that's good. It can be twice as hard for us to to let there be good news. And it's weird because in those moments, we're so desperate for there to be good news. We're so desperate that it happened, but we're so much more suspicious if the news is actually true. It's like we intuitively know our souls can't handle the mirage. And so to guard against that pain, we just refuse to believe. And when that's the case, joy and amazement as ironic as it seems, becomes an obstacle to our faith. I I think part of this as well, like for the disciples and for us, like we we don't want to believe in the the truth of who Christ is or in the truth of his resurrection. We don't want to believe that because if that's true, that, that, that he conquered the grave, then what Jesus says about me and what he, and what he says about how God feels towards me must be true as well. Right? If Jesus really did conquer the grave and has promised that by faith in him we can too, then it must be true, right? If, if Jesus really rose from the dead and brought life from death, victory from defeat, and hope from the hopeless, then God really can redeem a past. Right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then he really can take our old away and make us a new creation. If Jesus really walked out of the tomb, then God really can use me and use you in his good and divine and eternal purposes. And as crazy as it may seem, those truths, that makes it all the more hesitant for us to believe because we don't want to allow ourselves the hope that Jesus really did win and that God really does redeem. 
Instead, so often we can choose to stay in our pain, stay in the pain of our past mistakes, or hold ourselves captive to broken dreams and shattered plans, rather than believe that we serve a God who already has shown that he has the power to bring life from death, hope from despair, and joy from grief, and that he does this again and again and again. No, no, we are right. We are right to be full of joy and amazement at who the Lord is and and what he's done. We are right to be overwhelmed at the prospect of this complete redemption and the renewal that God would bring and will bring, but we should never let that be an obstacle to our faith, but really more evidence of faith, more evidence for why we should believe and for for why the world should stand ready to receive the good news and the hope of his gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul kind of illustrates this or speaks this, illustrates this with his own life in one of his letters to Timothy. Uh, Timothy was one of his kind of, I guess you could say, protégés in the faith, um, apprentice, if you will. Um, and, and so now Timothy is leading a church and Paul writes to him to encourage him in that effort. He's trying to coach him up, trying to pour into him. And he's reminding him of really all that we have in the gospel, the joy and the wonder that we have in the work that Christ has done and is doing in our lives. And so to speak to this, Paul writes about the, the change that the gospel brought into his own life. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, Paul writes this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul tells Timothy, look, I was the worst of sinners. I was the the blasphemer of God, a persecutor, a violent man. Paul knows his failures. Timothy knows them as well, right? He knows how much he's failed Jesus and even actively been against God. Yet Paul says the grace of the Lord was poured out into his life. And he appointed Paul to, to his service. And now Paul's life, his, his, that transformation, it's an example of the immense patience of Jesus for any and all who would believe in him and have eternal life. God saved Paul, God redeemed Paul, and now he uses Paul to his eternal work. And all of this, not because of what Paul had done, but because of the complete renewal and redemption that Jesus brings into his life. And, and, and I'm telling you, that... It could seem too good to be true because he goes from one of the most violent murders of the church to one of its greatest missionaries. And you can look at that and be like, it just seems too outlandish. It's too good to be true. But yet the joy at the fact that it's complete and total before and after transformation, again, it could just seem to be so far out there, so far-fetched that, that, that it happens because there's, we start to think, okay, if it happened for him, maybe it could happen for us. But then we think, no, this might be the mirage that our soul wants to avoid because it doesn't want to allow ourselves this much hope that Jesus really does transform that he really does redeem, that he really does save us, that he really does bring us from death 
and into life. And so Paul here is like, look, Timothy, it's happened in my life. It's, I'm living proof of this. You knew who I was before Christ and now after Jesus. I'm able to tell and speak about the transformation he brings. And so what Paul's doing, actually, he's doing what Jesus told the disciples to do. He's preaching the forgiveness of sins and the, and the, and the forgiveness and repentance of sins and the redemption that Christ brings into us. He's witnessing the truth of Christ and the transformation that Jesus brings into one's heart and one's soul. When we believe that he's the Messiah, when we believe that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again, in and through that, we can be forgiven and stand whole and stand redeemed. It's the joy of that process. It's the joy of that renewal. It's the joy of that redemption that Paul's like, I'm living, breathing proof that Christ does this, that it actually happens. I think with everything that's happened this past year on like a societal level, right? COVID, financial world, ups and downs, um, the social justice movement, election cycle. I mean, just take your pick off of everything that happened over this past year. and, And there were successes and there were brokenness and there were highs and lows throughout it all. But I can't help but feel like the world needs to hear this message all the more that Jesus has conquered the grave. That he has brought life from death, victory from defeat. And the same one who brought about that renewal stands ready to do the same for you today. That's a message the world needs to hear. Maybe you need to hear it this morning that the, the, the one who's brought about that change stands ready to bring that change into your life. And so maybe, maybe you're hearing of the good news of Jesus for the very first time and you're wondering, how can you know that these truths apply to you? I think there's no better time than on Easter Sunday for you to know for certain that this hope and joy applies to you. First and foremost, you, you simply admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you're a sinner, that you've made mistakes in the way that you love and respond to God and the way that you love and serve those around you. So you admit that you're a sinner and then you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave. And then you confess him as Lord of your life. Jesus, you are the one and only who's ever done that. You've shown and demonstrated the truth of who you are and the truth of of what you call us into. So I wanna make you the Lord of my life. And in so doing, you're not just intellectually acknowledging, yes, there was this Jesus who did some of these things. No, you were, you were giving him your ultimate yes and saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. Your path is now my path. And in doing that, right, admitting you're a sinner, believing who he is, what he's done, that he died in your place, that he conquered the grave and, and confessing him to be Lord of your life, that's how you believe on the gospel and stand firm on the gospel. It's what saves you from your sin and and delivers you into the hope and joy that he has for you. It begins and ushers in this transformative process that Christ does in our heart and in our life and in our soul. Don't let the joy at the thought of this forgiveness and renewal that he offers, don't let that be an obstacle to your faith. Actually, let it be the fruit of your faith that you trust in him to do that redemptive work. And because of that, it brings joy into your life and joy into your world. Honestly, like that's the takeaway for all of us this morning. Again, with everything that we've been through this past year, it can seem like joy and wonder and awe is in short supply. 
But Galatians 5, 22 through 24 says this about followers of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We can be a people of joy because we know definitively that Jesus redeems and restores. We can be a people of joy because against all odds, we believe that Jesus really did conquer the grave and defeat death. And if he has that power, if he has that ability, then what he says about this world being broken and fallen, then what he says about this is the way of redemption, what he says about what God does in our life and through our life, it is absolutely true. We can be a people of joy and that we know that Jesus has demonstrated to us God's love for us and God's calling to us to be caught up in the redeeming work that he's doing in this world. We should let the joy of that transformation and the sense of amazement that we get to do such a thing transform our lives to where, like Paul, our life is an example of the immense patience, love, and grace of the Lord. And I'm telling you, when you do, joy is not an obstacle to your faith, but it is the fruit of it. It's the joy of the Easter season that he really has conquered the grave that he really has brought life from death because he is Christ, the Redeemer. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for the truth that you conquered the grave. We thank you for the truth that you have the ability to lay your life down and take it back up again. God, it speaks to the truth of who you are and what you've done and how you do the same for us. You allow our sins to be credited to you. You allow for our lives to be crucified with you on the cross. We experience that spiritual death, but God, we also experience that renewal as well and that we know that we will uh, can live again with you in your kingdom. And God, while we still walk this earth, we know that we are being made new. We are being made into your image where you are refining us, Lord God. You're helping us see our sin, confess our sin, repent of our sin, and grow in your righteousness. And so God, help us this Easter season be marked by joy and awe and wonder at who you are and what you've done. God, may we never let that joy and wonder be an obstacle to our faith, but God, help it. Help it to be the fruit of the faith that we have in you. Joy over who you are. Joy over the love that you have given. Joy over the transformation that you are bringing into our life. And joy over the good that you are bringing into this world. God, we love you. And we thank you for your victory. We thank you for your grace and applying it to our lives. God, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And happy Easter.